Hello and welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our new podcast where we discuss political and economic questions which are facing the world today. My name is Jonathan Charles. We're live here at the headquarters of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, right here in the heart of London, before a live audience. Uh, I'm joined as well, as ever, by my colleague Kerry Law, my partner in crime who helps us to tackle these dilemmas. And we certainly picked a, a tough one for the first one, Kerry. The toughest dilemma of all, Brexit. What does it mean? Why has Brexit happened? What's it going to mean for our countries of operations? That's what we'll be finding out in this podcast. What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? What is the future of poverty? This is dilemmas at ebrd.com. That going to be our Pocket Dilemma series. There's a lot to do in the uh, weeks ahead. We'll be hearing about many issues. Brexit is the first one. And perhaps very often when we're talking about something complex, it's worth going into the origins of the word Brexit. Where did it come from? Well, the Oxford English Dictionary said it comes from a guy called Peter Wilding. They've given him the honor of being the founder of this word. He apparently uh, used it first of all in 2012. He was campaigning for the UK to remain uh, in the EU and in 2012 he actually tweeted, stumbling towards the Brexit, Britain, a referendum and an ever closer reckoning. So the Oxford English Dictionary said in 2017 he was the guy who came up with it. And he added, unless a clear view is pushed that Britain must lead in Europe at the very least to achieve the completion of the single market, then the portmanteau for Greek Euro exit, Grexit, might be followed by another sad word, Brexit, is what he predicted. Seven years later, three years down the line, we're none the wiser, of course, about the UK's relationships with the EU, but some of the risks have become clearer and clearer. Tonight, we'll try to find out what lies beyond Brexit, how businesses and economies can deal with the risks of Brexit across our countries of operations. And Kerry, you're an American. What's it like for you watching this European debacle? I can't think of any other word. European mess unfolds. So. Mess is probably a great word. So you know, from a, from a U.S. perspective, growing up, whenever I heard about the EU, it was always in the context of this is the biggest peace project in history and it's all about security. So those were the first things I thought of when I would, you know, think of the, of the EU. And it was so much more than, than just about money. So the EU and the UK, they've always been allies of the US. We've really always supported US um, or EU, in, EU integration, European integration. We've, sh we've really stood shoulder to shoulder with the EU and the UK specifically in a, in a lot of the conflicts throughout the years. Um, but I've always had the issue to try to decouple the UK from Europe or the UK from being European because from an American perspective, the UK is very European. So you have your NHS and your welfare state, which is very different from, a U from a, the US perspective or from the US in general. Um, and I actually read this great book, which kind of helped me understand a little bit more how this kind of came to be and a little bit more about this history. Um, it's called A Short History of the Origins of Brexit by a gentleman by the name of Kevin O'Rourke. And the book kind of went through from the beginning why this relationship is so tenuous between the UK and the EU, or at least the European Integration Project. Um, so that really helped, but it's really not just about history, it's also about what's happening today in our society. 
And this is where I can really draw some parallels to the US. So, you know, in my country, there's a lot of inward looking. We have a lot of issues with people feeling left behind and increase in inequality, possibly due to the financial crisis. We have a lot of anti-immigration sentiment that's very prevalent on the news. So there's a lot of that happening in the US, which is also happening here. So a lot of parallels between, between our countries. I like the sound of a short book on Brexit. <coughs> Must be only a few thousand pages long now. Um, <laughs> It's interesting, you know, if I think back to when I was in Brussels for the BBC in the early 1990s as the BBC's Europe correspondent, that, that suggestion you just raised of why Britain felt a bit different from the European mainland, I always thought, and then of course there were, there were in effect uh, Brexiteers, they were fighting against the Maastricht Treaty uh, for the United Kingdom, saying they didn't like it, it's the hard right in, on this issue in the Conservative Party. And I often thought, you know, when you listen to them, they were harking back to 1940 when Britain stood alone in the Battle of Britain. That was their, as far as I could see, defining moment. And they, they felt, therefore, Britain could always survive on its own. So there was definitely this feeling of isolationism, in a way, absolutely. to the United Kingdom. So similar, I suppose, to an America First policy that, no, that might be being pursued at the moment. You know, and this isn't just a social <laughs> feeling, right? There's actually some economic implications to this. So there was this great study, and I'll just give you an example from the US, that the Institute of International Finance put out. And it was on the US-China uh, trade wars. And it said that uh, these trade wars are actually costing, you know, this inward looking from the US, it's costing the US the equivalent of about $40 billion a year in lost exports, which is hurting the U.S. way more than it's hurting China at this point. So again, it's not just about sentiments, it actually has a, a real kind of economic bottom line impact. Yeah, and I think a lot of the Brexit costs obviously <coughs> are very unclear for the United Kingdom at the moment, but we do have some estimates about what it means for the EBRD regions, the uh, almost 40 countries that we deal with uh, in this organization. And as we'll be hearing, you know, our economists predict that, for instance, cumulatively, the economic impact of a no-deal Brexit is projected to be the largest for economies of southeastern Europe, and that's mainly through disruption to trade links uh, encompassing the UK and other advanced uh, economies in Europe. There's impact as well on the EU accession reform momentum and a reduction uh, possibly in the EU structural and cohesion funds which are available. So we're going to be looking at some of those issues as we, as we go forward. Trade, though, is at the heart of it. Uh, and that's what we'll be discussing in just a minute. Let me remind you, you are listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd uh, is our handle. Well, today we've got a great lineup of guests who will help us to figure it out. Uh, why Brexit, what it means for the EBRD regions. They're with us in front of this live audience at EBRD headquarters. Uh, Sergei Guriev is a chief economist at the EBRD. Elena Rybakova is deputy chief economist of the International Institute of Finance and a visiting Bruegel fellow. Michael Kitson is a senior lecturer in international macroeconomics at the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. Uh, let's get a quick take from them, the quick headlines as to the take on Brexit. Sergei, what's your top line on this? Well, I think Brexit is a sovereign decision of British voters, probably not driven by expectations of uh, faster economic growth and prosperity. And uh, pretty much every group of economists doing macroeconomic forecasting said that Brexit will have an economic cost. And it's already taken a toll on uh, British GDP. And in that sense, it's a non-economic decision to take back control with a obvious economic cost. And since I only have five seconds, I will not go into this. <laughs> You'll but have plenty of time later to do but that. But I, I can go on and on how economically costly that is. There's plenty of time to go on and on over the next few years as this debate continues. Uh, Alina. I think it is a voice of discontent. 
It's an emotional reaction to the lack of productivity in the UK or slow productivity growth. Of course, nobody goes to the polls thinking, oh my goodness, there is low productivity or regional disparity in productivity, I'm going to vote Brexit. But I think there is indeed emotional reaction to that as well as also reaction to European institutions. I think European project, we started getting into too many different areas and we lost focus that maybe there are one or two, three priorities where we should all converge to, but for the rest we might want to have Europe of clubs. And de facto that has been happening already, but we haven't acknowledged that. And I think this is also UK's population vote against it. Michael. I'll keep it short, it's a shambles. Right, okay. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a pretty pithy... Uh, single line and you'll have a chance to expand on that uh, in an equally pithy yeah. way later. Uh, Kerry, let's find out what it means for real entrepreneurs. Absolutely. So we actually have a special guest in the audience today. We have Michal Stanga from Future Processing in Poland, who's going to share with us his, bre his Brexit experience. We also have a clip from uh, Genevieve Kristova Murray from the Ligna Group in Bulgaria, and she's going to tell us how she Brexit-proofed her company. But before we get into this, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to play a little game with you guys. I hope everyone logged on to menti.com, and we're going to go through some myths, um, uh, myths of headlines between the uh, UK and the EU over the last 30 years. There's been a lot of fake news, but a lot of real news as well. So um, use the Menti app to vote if it's true or false. And we will start with our first question. Okay, so <laughs> the newspaper, The Sun, in 2005, claimed that there was health and safety madness taking over Britain. And it said that the EU banned UK butchers from selling UK dog bones in the UK. What do we think? Is this true or is this false? Okay, yeah, so at uh, the moment the voting here at least uh, in the live audience, 71% of you think it's false, or roughly 70%, about 30% of you think it is true. Well actually, it is kind of true. Uh, after the foot and mouth breakout uh, which the UK had, uh, the EU imposed proper labelling on food versus food waste. They wanted to contain uh, such epidemics and they wanted to make it harder for butchers to sell improperly labelled meat. So those bones uh, had to be qualified as, as not waste, otherwise they couldn't be sold. So there's some truth in that. Well, nobody wants so to it's a It shows how complex these things are, actually. Some of the things you think of myths yeah. are true. A lot of the things that are myths are definitely false. Though. Absolutely, and these mm. headlines can really mm. kind of skew your, mm. your perspective. Okay, so the next one. The Daily Telegraph in 2008 said that the EU was trying to outlaw the imperial measurement of acre. So all acre measurements were, were going to be replaced by the hectare measurement. How true is this? True or false? been pretty even. No, oh, yes, it's just like the uh, Brexit vote, 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> no chance for a second vote. Um, actually, so there you are. So you're, you're settling around about 58% false, 42% true. So what do we think about this one? Actually, it's false. <laughs> Contrary to the acres of press coverage, the EU hasn't banned this unit of measurement. Legislation being brought in to safeguard the use of the mile and the pint simply removes the exemption for the use of acres in the land registry to reflect current UK practice. So, in fact, the UK land is, uh, registry is, uh, has worked in uh, hectares since 1995. Well, Hector, the Hector measurement has always confused me a bit, so I'm glad he stuck with <laughs> That's because you're an American. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the next one. The Sun, again, in 2005, said that the EU was going to ban bagpipes in the UK as their noise levels are too high and seen as noise pollution. You might have some angry Scots in the hmm. audience. Who thinks this is true and who thinks it is false? 
Okay, so it's roughly 80% uh, false, 20% true, according to you in the audience. Well, here's a complex one. So, um, if in the highly unlikely event a bagpipe player is hired to play continuously for eight hours, I'm trying to imagine eight hours of bagpipe playing, um, and the noise created uh, average more than 87 decibels, the employer would be obliged to carry out a risk assessment to see where changes can be made, tinkering with the acoustics in a hall to reduce echoes, for example. So it's a complex one, bit of truth, bit of falsity in that one. Uh, you have to love bagpipes though, don't you, for eight hours? Poor bagpiper. Eight hours <laughs> poor audience, I was thinking, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, this is our last one. So in October of 1998, the Sun reported, and I quote, we could get out from under the deluge of idiotic Euro directives by withdrawing from the political union. We could then join the renamed North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. Is this true or is this false? That's uh, 93, 94% true, 4% false. Well, um, it might have been a myth, of course, in 1988, uh, but it's uh, increasingly looking like fact now, possibly. If uh, the UK ever leaves uh, the EU, that would uh, have some truth in it, although I don't think we'd be joining NAFTA now, of course. No. So, let's uh, see where we go from this. Let, let's uh, go into a bit more detail. Let me remind you, you are uh, listening, and we're discussing the Brexit dilemma. You're listening to EBRD's Pocket Dilemmas. Why Brexit and its impact on the EBRD regions? Are there any winners or losers? You can download this episode on iTunes, Spotify, Spotify or SoundCloud. You can rate and review us. It'll help others to find it. Um, let's turn to our guest, Sergei Guriev, as the EBRD chief economist. What are the EBRD's latest estimates and projections for the economic impact of Brexit on the EBRD region? Thank you, Jonathan. I think um, it is very hard to predict what's going to be the implication of Brexit for our countries, exactly because we don't know what the Brexit itself is going mm. to be. Whether uh, UK will stay in the customs union, where it will be hard Brexit, no deal Brexit, Norwegian-style Brexit, Swiss-style Brexit, and so on. And that, of course, creates a lot of uncertainty for those forecasts. So uh, what we need to do, we need to look at different channels. These channels include trade, our country's uh, export to the UK, import parts for their value chains from the UK. And these numbers are not very large, but they are substantial. And uh, we are talking about percentage points of GDP of our country's uh, impact uh, from Brexit. And that would be 1% of GDP for some, some countries, a bit more, a bit less for other countries, Central Europe, Southern Europe, and Turkey. Uh, when we talk about other channels like remittances, some of our countries have sent a substantial part of their population to the UK who work here and send their money back home. These amounts look large to normal people, so the estimate for Poland, for example, is a billion pounds a year. However, if you think about this as a share of UK economy or even of Polish economy, this is not a large number. It could be a quarter of percentage point of GDP uh, for Poland and much less of a proportion for the UK. So this number is not huge. Whatever happens to P uh, Pol Polish citizens staying here, living here, working here, the impact on influx of pounds into Polish economy is actually not very large. What is interesting though is the impact on the EU budget and EU structural funds and cohesion funds coming into our countries. Some of these countries actually receive a lot of money from Brussels and uh, for some of these countries these uh, amounts are uh, running into the range of two or three percentage points of GDP and uh, Brexit would have or will have substantial impact on this. First and foremost, because the budget itself 
will, is, will be smaller. Uh, despite what Brexiteers would tell you, the contribution of uh, uh, the UK to European budget is not 350 million per week. It's actually less than half of that because of the system of UK rebates and also receivables from, from the EU, but it is still in the range of 10 billion euros a year, which means uh, UK budget would be something like six percentage points smaller. And on top of that, there is also a very important indirect effect of Brexit. Brexit is, uh, sorry, Britain is richer. Before Brexit, Britain is richer than average European country. That means when uh, Brexit, or if Brexit happens, average European GDP per capita would go down. And suddenly, regions in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, which used to be below 75%, I'm going now in technical detail, but it's very important. If, if your region is below 75% of European level, you qualify for cohesion funds. And some Hungarian regions, which seem to be poor today, after Brexit, may become more or less closer to the average and will not be eligible for the funds. So this, uh, all these issues imply that some of our countries may actually lose quite a bit. And from some, some of our countries, the impact of Brexit may reduce the funds received from Brussels by a quarter, which, res which, result, which will result in something like a, um, half a percentage point decline, in terms of half a percentage point of GDP decline of, uh, of funds received from Brussels, which will probably have less of an impact on GDP, but still a substantial impact. All of that is still a small number as a percentage point of GDP relative to what Britain is going to suffer and uh, the current estimates actually you've not asked this question but this question keeps coming up so let me put it straight the current estimates of the eco of economists and current consensus is that just in the three years since the referendum until now not even thinking about what's going to happen afterwards but by now britain has been losing about one percentage point of gdp every year which means instead of this brexit bus telling you we will save 350 million per week Britain has actually lost 350 million per week mm -hmm. in GDP in the last three years. Yes, I noticed that figure the other day. It's, uh, it's quite a stark figure when you look at it. What about value chains, uh, Sergey? And I'm thinking, you know, examples which I think you had, uh, the bank has had in, it, in its work in this area. Uh, for example, uh, a car components manufacturer in Slovakia which would then be obviously a business in Slovakia doing very well manufacturing car components. They make their way first to another EU country, to Germany, and then on to the United Kingdom. What's going to happen to that sort of business? So in our, in our estimates, we look not just at the direct effect, but also indirect effect through value chains, Euro European value chains. Uh, like you said, many of our countries have actually embedded themselves in a, to a great extent to European value chains, German value chains, but also British value chains. And uh, we find that this indirect channel is important, but it's a second order uh, impact relative to the direct impact. And since uh, uh, we mentioned US-Chinese trade war before, Kerry was talking about impact of US-China trade war, I should say that all these impacts through European value chains will be still relatively minor relative to uh, what uh, we can see as a fallout of a full-blown US-China trade war. So. Uh, when you think about Brexit being shambles or a disaster, uh, it's all relative. Um, so, so Sergey, would you say um, then you actually mentioned a lot about the the employment within some of these countries, and what happens to like let's say Polish employment? So they're here in the UK. Some of them might be able to stay. Some can leave. 
is the rest of the EU able to absorb some of these these jobs? And is it are, are they going to be able to make up for this pay gap, assuming that they'll be able to go into their home countries, presumably a, around the same amount of pay? Or what are your thoughts? So if uh, people from Central and Eastern Europe who reside here go back to their countries, their countries will rejoice. They, they actually will be very happy to get those immigrants back. This is the loss of skill set they've suffered. That's, in, in yeah, these countries have been suffering from brain drain. And in our recent transition report, we actually carried out an estimate of the impact of this exodus of East Europeans and Central Europeans into the West when Western labor markets opened for those uh, workers. And we show that that has a major negative impact on Central and East European firms' productivity. And so if this skilled workers go back, that will be actually a very big uh, gift to those economies. There is not an issue of unemployment, but an issue of skills shortages and worker shortages. If you go to Hungary today, this is a number one issue. If you go to Poland today, it is not such a big issue because there are almost 2 million Ukrainians who've come to Poland to take up those jobs, which are now available, but Poles are all here, right? And, uh, and, and then when you go to Ukraine, uh, the return of skilled Ukrainians working in Poland. So you shouldn't really worry about those economies suddenly uh, getting an unemployment hike because of skilled Polish workers and entrepreneurs coming back. Great. Michael, let's bring you into the conversation. So are there winners and losers with Brexit that you see? Are they, are they the same winners that Sergei outlined? Well, I think there will be some winners, but they're vastly um, outnumbered by the losers. Uh, and it's very important to stress, of course, here that we're looking at EBRB countries. But the biggest loser, as Sergey mentioned, is the UK. And the second biggest loser is going to be Ireland, because, again, because the issues of proximity and the border. Those are the two countries going to lose the most. And then if we look at the three main channels uh, through which uh, I would argue Brexit is going to have a big impact. The first one is trade, and picking up on Sergey said, we're going to have more distortions in trade. Supply chains will be disrupted, particularly in the UK, and that's going to have an adverse effect on both trading partners. So trade is a lose-lose game if we have a Brexit. Then we get migration, and migration may benefit countries where they've got returning entrepreneurs, returning skills, but Britain will be losing them. So that will affect the UK labour market and it will particularly affect the innovation performance of the UK economy. Because really people from abroad bring in lots of skills but also help our innovation performance. So that's going to be a negative effect on the UK economy. Then the third mechanism is investment and particularly foreign direct investment. And there will be winners and losers there. And again the loser is going to be the UK because firms are going to likely to move out of the UK because of the disruptions of trade, access to labour, issues about innovation, and they are, are and disruptive supply chains, and they're likely to move particularly into the European market, to the single European market, but also into other countries. So we're going to lose our capacity in terms of supply, particularly in terms of firms moving out. So the big loser is the UK. Um, other countries will lose, but there may be some who will gain, particularly by gaining skilled labour and particularly by gaining investment coming back into their countries. It's an interesting question you've just raised there about uh, where investment moves to. Because we have heard, you know, if I think about EBRD countries, we've heard a lot of car manufacturers in the UK either saying publicly or privately they may move to Slovakia for some of their production, identifying places in Central and Eastern Europe. So they could certainly gain some inward investment from that point of view. I, I totally agree. The, the car manufacturers are the big one, but there may be other industries as well who will be thinking about moving because of the disruptions of trade, the extra costs of doing trade. It's not just about tariffs, it's about additional costs 
about access to labour and disruptive supply chains in the UK. Now, there are other areas, maybe, of course, the, the big concern was about the City of London moving, mm. about, about finance. It may be that finance is such a big beast globally that we don't see the big effects there. So we will actually see the effects in many industries, such as the motor car industry and other industries. Uh, and, and if we're going back to the political economy of Brexit, the unfortunate thing in many cases is that many of the areas, I think, that voted for Brexit will actually be losing from Brexit in terms of job and loss of economic activity. So, Alina, let's, let's bring you in. So, right now we're on course for a no-deal Brexit. Um, and you've done a lot of work having to do with the WTO rules. People keep saying, quite casually actually, we can just rely on WTO rules. What, what are your thoughts about, about that possibility? Well, I think the most important news flash here, there might be no, no WTO by the end of this year. So <laughs> <laughs> I will be careful relying on that. And the reason I say that, of course, we have the dispute uh, settlement mechanism in the WTO. And uh, of course, we have technical details on how the tariffs on individual products will change. It's all fine and very interesting and important. But if there is no mechanism to settle disputes or within that WTO, uh, then there is no WTO. And as of now, out of the seven judges which sit on the appellate body, I think there are only three left, three left, and two of them retiring in December. That's it. So, for example, if in a certain um, dispute, one of the judges has a maybe personal connection or, or sort of an interest in and they have to recuse themselves from judging, they already cannot carry out an assessment of that kind of dispute. Um, the blocking of the appointment of this judge, it's already started, I think, already with the Obama administration and, of course, continued with Trump. And as recently as this, uh, a few months ago, Trump even threatened to either kick out China or take out the U.S. from the WTO. So it's unlikely they're going to be approving any more judge, judge appointments in the coming months. There have been a lot of efforts from different groups of the countries trying to propose the mechanism how to resolve it. Unfortunately, a revamping of the system would require a consensus. So that means all of the over 160 members of WTO would have to agree. That seems unlikely. You could try to tweak the appellate body regulations and maybe sort of do a patch up and this way have the body continue functioning. Uh, for now, they do, don't seem to have agreed. So I think that's the very important technical, well, not existential <laughs> <laughs> element of falling back on the WTO. Are there any advanced countries, by the way, that trade on WTO rules alone? I think there are some of the cases where UK already has, or mm. part of the European Union has this open WTO relationship where there is no free trade okay. agreement. That is, uh, that, but presumably that is with very small economies. Well, I think that generally, or, yes, uh, there are more smaller, smaller mm. cases. Mm. Um, that's for sure. And that's sort of that's one element. The second element is the national security issue. Mm. And in economics, we haven't been thinking about national security since the 30s, probably, or the Cold War. It's not a very uh, lively part of literature in economics. But if you look at the national security strategy of the United States, in I think 2017, the one was published, China, trade with China, trade imbalance with China is a national security issue for the US. That's another news flash. So within that uh, circumstance to be the smaller country, of course, UK is a very important market, but nonetheless a smaller market, uh, when these big powers are going for sort of tectonic shifts in the relationship and invoke a national security clause, and that's exactly what US invoked with the steel tariffs, uh, I think it is very dangerous. Um, that's, that's the second concern. Okay, Michael, I mean, just do you, do you think, you know, we hear a lot from politicians, don't we, about uh, certainly from the European Research Group and from 
their ilk about falling back on WTO rules. Surely we can have a no deal, we can fall back on. They always quote uh, Article 24 of the WTO, could misquote Article 24. Do you think it's possible for a major economy like the UK to trade on WTO rules? We could resort to WTO rules, but what I think is important to stress is that this is going to bring in extra frictions and hurdles to trade. Um, there's a group that advocate this called Economists for Free Trade. WTO rules is not going to be about free trade. It's going to cause distortions to free trade. First, the UK will, of course, introduce tariffs. It's indicated that it's going to introduce 13% on imported goods, which is a reduction. It's about 20% now, but the UK will have tariffs. The UK will face tariffs. It will also face tariffs into the EU. It will make it more difficult to trade. There will be quotas on, in some areas. There will be increasing customs regulations. All of these things will make trade more difficult within WTO rules. Now, we can say, well, then we can negotiate our own free trade agreements, which are an improvement over WTO rules. Not as good as a customs mm. union or a single market, but they're an improvement. But these take a long time to organize. Mm. Economists just think you just go out and organize a free trade agreement. You don't. It takes an awful long time. So we have to negotiate a trade agreement with the EU. We'll have to negotiate a trade agreement with other countries. We'll lose the benefit of the free trade agreements of the EU, a big bargaining power has already negotiated with other countries. So this will be a long time and of course major distortions to, to Britain's trading performance. This is not about moving towards free trade. It's actually moving away from a form of free trade and will make it very much more difficult for the UK to trade and will have some adverse effects on, of course, on our trading partners. So, so question for you that you're Irish. Correct? No, I'm not Irish, but that's very interesting. That's very interesting. It's a very, very pertinent observation because um, my, my parents are from Ireland. Well, there but, we go. but there you go. But I was born in the West Country. Many people from the United States think the West Country accent is an Irish accent. I take it as a compliment because my parents are from Ireland. Uh, and my, 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 my children have been calling me a plastic paddy for all these years. In, until Brexit, now okay. what do they say? They want your Where's passport? our Irish passport yeah, exactly. arriving? Yes, yeah, so, so, yeah. So, uh, so my, my question, my question about Ireland then, well, it's still well, well placed yeah, with yeah. you. Um, so the, don't the WTO rules then require there to be a hard, a hard border then in Ireland? Because then you'd be giving preferential access um, you know, between Ireland. So yes. how does that work? So then I guess from Alina's point, could another country then bring the UK to court? But then would anything actually happen in court? How will the UK get around this? Or well, will they not? Will they just sit it, in well, obviously, if we're sticking to WTO rules, there will be a hard border between the North and the South. But then that's when we get into the whole issue about the backstop. And the backstop is what stopped the, the withdrawal agreements taking place now. And what's interesting for, people, for many people in the audience and who are listening at home is that the whole issue about the Irish border and the backstop was never mentioned at all, or hardly mentioned at all, up until the vote. And now it's become the dominant issue. Because the dominant issue is saying, we will have a porous border. And then you can't have that in alignment with WTO rules and so on. So it, there, there, are, there is that contradiction there. And, and that's still got to be sorted out about how we deal with the backstop and how we deal with that Irish border. OK, we'll hear some more from the three of you in a few minutes. Um, let's turn to the entrepreneurs. And we've certainly been talking to our clients at the EBRD. You know, for example, in recent conversations with one of our clients, Amplitudo from Montenegro, they said they had been considering expansion of their IT company to uh, the European Union. They had been looking at the UK, but with Brexit, they decided to opt for Estonia. And there are many, many more stories we could tell like that of missed out investment uh, in recent months. And, and we're going to hear some more about that now. Yeah, and you know, you wonder if this is more the exception than, than the rule. But 
We do have um, two, two, well, one clip and one person in the audience with us today for, to give us kind of a European perspective. Um, but first, let's go to the clip. So we have Genoveva Kristova Murray from the Ligna Group in Bulgaria. She's going to tell us how she was able to Brexit-proof her company. I'm Jenny Kristova Murray, and I'm the managing director of Ligna Group. Ligna Group is a contract furniture company set up back in 2005. So now over all these years we've been dealing in the contract furniture industry in the hospitality world, furnishing hotels as Marriott, Hilton, Accor and many others. One of our latest projects this year is uh, the Vintland Mercer Hotel, which is next to St. Paul's Cathedral, next to Tower Bridge. And we are very proud that we open it entirely with the Bulgarian furniture. We've been working in UK from 2010. As you know by my name, I said Murray, which means related to UK. So my husband is British and we are Bulgarian British family. So I remember the day when we woke up with the news. It was quite surprising and shocking day and since then we are worried what's going to be the deal. We hope that soon to have a deal because no deal means a very big uncertainty. The uncertainty means especially in the hospitality industry all the investors stopping their plans for further expansion in hotels and you know or shifting their investment plans somewhere else so which is affecting our industry. We are prepared because since 2012 we set up UK business, a legal contract furnishes company which is dealing at the UK market. So we are prepared and we consider this as a competitive advantage for our, for our company. We are prepared but we really hope for a deal. It's a good example, isn't it, Kerry, of just how complex it's become for companies and how they have to distort their activity in order to keep trading. Absolutely. Yeah. Hoping for a deal but preparing <coughs> for the worst. I guess that's her, that's her strategy, which is a good one. Um, so here with us today we have Michal Stanga from Future Processing in Poland. He's going to be able to share with us his own experience, so thanks for being here today. Um, let's just start with you explaining a little bit about your company and what your Brexit story is. Uh, hello, hi everyone. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, what we do, we work with uh, UK companies for almost uh, 12, 20 years now. We started uh, in the UK market and we provide bespoke software solutions for large enterprises here in the, in the UK. We specialize in solving your business problems through technology, through IT. And we formed a number of long-term relations with, with clients in the UK that are based on mutual trust, agreement and op uh, openness. And I believe this is the strength of our business at the moment. Also, our clients from the UK say that we are great people to work with. We are part of their team and we are part of the solution. So those fundamentals in this situation that's happening at the moment, I feel, can help us to thrive uh, the uncertainty that's happening. And, and how difficult is it for you to, to deal with the complexity of a, such an uncertain situation? Well, it's, it's hard. Uh, we are an engineering company, so we would say that it's impossible to prepare to something that you don't know mm. a lot about. So what we actually do, we focus on our clients. We make sure that 
we are constantly in, in touch with them. We know what the plans are, and we know how we can respond to those uh, to those plans. We also feel that the work we do is is required uh, by those businesses, and they just cannot stop investing into uh, the software that helps them run their businesses because they will lose their competitive advantage. So what we see. We see, for example, less orders from the UK coming from new businesses. It's a problem for us. However, I also feel that it may be a problem for those businesses because other countries, other companies are investing. So we, for example, have more uh, incoming projects from Germany, from France, from Scandinavia, and they will catch up. They will have this uh, technology that UK businesses will not have because they are now uncertain of how they can deal with us. What's the best case scenario for how this turns out for you and what's the worst case scenario? Well, uh, the best case for us, I would think, uh, would be that uh, this all stops and we <laughs> remain as it is <laughs> because it's a known ground for everyone so we can all get back to, to doing business like we used to do. Uh, with regards to a worst case scenario, we are qu quite concerned what will happen if the currency exchange will dramatically go down because this will... Uh, weakened the uh, buying power of UK companies and although we are protected by our contracts it, it's uh, a joint problem. It, we will not leave our partners in the UK here with a problem because the contract says we can. We will need to find out a way to, to figure this out. However, I feel because we are in those long-term relationships with those companies we will find a way that business somehow always find, finds a way regardless of what's happened uh, and what impacts comes from the politics. Okay. Thank you for uh, giving us that first-hand view as an entrepreneur. Um, I think time's uh, running away from us a bit. Let, let's hear from you, the audience. If you've got some questions, um, put up your hand and we'll put them to the panel. Uh, say who you are, uh, give us your name and tell us your question. And first of all, yes, the gentleman in the second row. Hi, uh, Josh Vanderplug. Um, my question is, I guess just generally, on one hand we heard that EBRD countries of operations may benefit from additional international investment and potentially the return of some highly skilled expatriates. On the other hand, this could be outweighed by the disruption in supply chains across the continent, but that is not limited only to EBRD countries of operations. So my question is, if we do limit this cost-benefit analysis only to countries of operations, does the balance change at all? In other words, could countries of operations actually end up ahead? Okay. Well, uh, you can imagine a scenario where UK trade with the EU is diverted to some other places, for example, Tunisia and Morocco, and uh, these countries may benefit. So whenever you have trade disruption, you also talk about trade diversion, and countries the trade is diverted to, you can imagine that they benefit. But overall, uh, I fully agree with Michael that uh, a trade disruption is a lose-lose situation. And the biggest loser is the United Kingdom, but pretty much uh, all our countries now trading with the UK, uh, engaged in other economic uh, cooperation with the UK, will lose. That's, that's for sure. Thank you. Uh, lady just over here in the front row. Hello, I'm Kamola Mahmudova. I'm senior banker in financial institutions team. So um, one uh, question like this. So maybe all these uh, nationalistic agendas are hijacking uh, climate uh, issues. What do you think? They're certainly probably stopping focus on climate issues, certainly in the United Kingdom, because there's no time to focus on anything else, Michael. I, I think so. I mean, uh, 
one of the biggest problems for, for the UK is that we're so preoccupied with Brexit, we're not looking at anything else. Mm. All the big issues, whether it be climate change, education, health, all of those issues have been put, to the, put on the back burner. Two, two underlying problems. We, well, we've suffered an economic shock in 2007, 2008. When you have an economic shock in many economies, including the UK, you blame others. You blame other countries, you blame trade, you blame foreign firms, and you blame immigrants. We saw it in the 1930s with dreadful repercussions. We saw it in the 1970s, and we've seen it in the, in the, after the current recent financial crisis, blaming other people. And the, another issue is it's not about the EU. It's about the developments of the global economy. The world's become more integrated over the past 20 or 30 years. And some, some countries have done very well because of this. But in terms of within countries, um, the top 1% in Europe and North America have done very well. The middle classes in Asia have done pretty well. The ones that have been squeezed are the ones, the, sort of the working classes and the lower middle classes in Europe and North America. Uh, and I would contend that many of those people have legitimate concerns, and many of those people also voted for Brexit, and in the USA many of those people voted for Trump. So I think it's much more due to underlying social and economic concerns. Uh, and it's not just about concerns about the EU, it's concerns about the way the global economy has been evolving, and many people in many countries haven't benefited from so-called globalisation. Alina, that's a good point, that economic populism is, to, uh, is behind Brexit, it's also behind many other movements we're seeing, uh, populist movements around Europe, around the world. I think it's important also to carry on from, from the earlier point on uh, one thing is discontent with globalization, another one is discontent with institutions around globalization. They've evolved in a certain way in, in the last 20, 30 years, and I think it would be wrong to hang on to them in the current state. So, for example, you know, WTO and China, which still has the preferred country status within WTO, or other, including the climate uh, negotiations. It is important to acknowledge that there are some of these institutions are broken and offer new solutions. Maybe it is regional clubs, we're going back to that. Um, at least, rather than just trying to go for preserving the current institutions, it's important to acknowledge that uh, populism is not entirely unfounded, you know, and not everybody benefited from the, in the same way from the globalization, and the shape of the institutions need to help uh, welcome these people into the fold. Question from, I think, gentleman in the third row, yes. Hello, I'm Kaspers Krumholz. I work uh, at the Latvian Embassy with Brexit issues. Um, my question is regarding uh, UK independent trade policy, which is certainly one of the main aims um, in these uh, negotiations as well. And uh, certainly this uh, backstop issue comes in also in, in this aspect. And uh, how would you assess uh, the prospects for uh, UK-US trade deal um, in the current context when uh, <laughs> EU is trying to advance um, trade negotiations with the United States? Uh, also seeing that there might be interest for the US to, in a way, align UK with its trade policy and approach, in a way, also to counterbalance China. So. Do you see, in a way, emerge, emerging this That's kind of That's a very interesting situation? question, and uh, you know, I've certainly seen US trade negotiations close up for almost 30 years. Uh, they're the toughest trade negotiators I think I've ever met, going right back to the GATT talks uh, 
of the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Alina, what do you think? Well, I'll start with an anecdote. Uh, when the whole Brexit story started, I got a call from a headhunter asking, can I help with the trade negotiations? <laughs> and I said, well, first of all, I'm a Latvian, <laughs> so you don't want me here, right? And second one, I'm a macroeconomist. I didn't specialize in trade. But it tells you a lot of UK institutions, um, they've sort of, they found the old experts. They oftentimes happen also to be old because the trade negotiations happened 20, 30 years ago. And they're trying to help them train 200, 300 younger people to go through these trade negotiations, which are very lengthy and detail-oriented process. Well, at the table you get a big agreements and then you go over little comma by comma over industry-specific negotiations, which takes years. So long story short, how important is UK in the power game of the US versus China. My personal opinion would be not too important. I think it's much more important for the US to put European Union on the edge and force them to choose China versus the US. And I think that's where the, the big sort of the who blinks first game is happening. Um, I think UK could be a side story where maybe it's beneficial for the US. Uh, uh, for example, UK is very important for the game, the security aspect of Europe. There are certain, there are a lot of security um, initiatives that Europeans wouldn't be able to carry out without the support infrastructure of the UK. So maybe with that angle, you know, you could happen something also move forward on trade. But I don't think it is a priority for the US in any shape or form. Michael, we're going to get the best uh, part of a US trade deal? No, I don't think so. I, I think I agree with Alina on, on all, her, all her points there that um, uh, we've benefited being part of the EU, being part of the big block in terms of trade agreements. We're going to be much smaller. So we're, we're, we're a much more, smaller player, uh, and that will affect our bargaining power. Uh, and secondly, um, bargaining with the US, the US actually is becoming increasingly inward-looking at the moment, and that's creating even more challenges. So we, we are bargaining with a protectionist country. Um, so I, I don't think that um, the, the UK-US relationship, the so-called special relationship, is not really that special, <laughs> and I don't think it's going to get us out of this mess that we're in at the moment. Can I just uh, follow up on this? I think uh, when you talk about independent UK policy, you should remember that a deal with the US or a deal with, the J with Japan or with whoever outside of the EU will depend on the deal with EU. Mm -hmm. And this deal is not finalized. Even if the withdrawal agreement proposed by Prime Minister May were accepted, were to be accepted, that is still not a final deal. And before you have a final deal, the deal with the U.S. will also not be final because U.S. trade partners, Japanese or, or uh, Chinese trade partners would ask a question, okay, we are trading with you, we are uh, investing in the U.K., we need to understand, do you have access to the market, what is the relationship with the imports from the uh, EU, and so on and so forth. So it will take much longer. And I'll just finish on my anecdote, which is even more bizarre. So I already was working at the BRD, and I got a phone call from, I guess, the same, uh, the same headhunter, uh, who says, uh, we need a chief economist for the newly formed uh, trade department. And, uh, and I said, I don't have a UK passport. They said, well, technically, we're still in the EU. <laughs> so, uh, if, you're, if you have a European passport, that would do. You will negotiate the exit uh, being a European citizen, which kind of tells you a bit about skills of these people. But then they also asked, uh, asked me, do you have a European passport? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> and uh, and then the conversation ended. But they didn't really do homework, neither the trade department at that point, nor, nor the headhunters. I, I, think, I, think I, I think I should add my story that I also received a phone call <laughs> uh, from the Department for Inter 
international trade asking whether I would go and run their communications operation. <laughs> After I'd finished laughing for a considerable length of time, I pointed out that probably my views were probably not Liam Fox's, the, uh, the Secretary of State for the Department for International Trade. <laughs> but well, I do no have no a UK passport. Yeah. No, one, no one called me, okay. so I'm, feel, I'm, I'm sure, feeling I'm sure they'll get round to it. Don't worry. It's coming, right. it's yeah. coming Katie. The phone it's calls coming. will come, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, thanks to the audience for their questions. So I have one last question, actually, for these three panelists up here. You guys are uh, experts and have been really uh, informative. So if you had to go work for the UK Brexit Department, there might be some openings soon, and you had to start tonight, what would your three priorities be over the next I don't know, six hours, six weeks, six months? And let's start with you, Michael. First of all, negotiate a customs agreement. That would be the, the probably the, the first point. Second, start negotiating of a, a free trade agreement. That would, that's going to take a long time. You certainly wouldn't be accomplished within six months. And third, and perhaps most importantly, I'd ask to be moved to another department. Yes. Um, <laughs> because, because of the challenges of that department. No. But nothing's going on in this country right. apart from Brexit. We need to think about the environment. We need to think about health. We need to think about education. We need to think about crime and infrastructure. We need to start doing all those things a modern state should be doing and not completely preoccupied with Brexit. And uh, many people in the room will know, virtually all the civil servants are now completely preoccupied mm. with Brexit. So let's get, get, get Brexit sorted out, hopefully, and then get on running a modern state. Absolutely. Alina? Well, I think just prepare for the extreme scenarios because uh, as the day passes, as each day passes, it's more likely that we'll have a second referendum or we have a crash out Brexit, although it seems maybe not in the coming days and, and weeks. So I think that's probably the, the, the range of scenario just widens uh, and I think that makes it tricky. And second, get a cat and call <laughs> it Brexit. <laughs> cat that never goes out. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I would try to specify the real trade-offs that politicians need to present to the people. So certain things, un unfortunately, are not compatible. If you want to have a trade agreement, you need to accept that there'll be somebody which will adjudicate the trade disputes. And in that sense, if you want to take back control fully, you need to be prepared that certain things you will not be able to do. You also need to remember that Ireland is part of European Union. So if uh, you want a wall with the European Union, you will have a wall with Ireland. And further on, there are too many things which uh, people who promoted Brexit uh, took for granted, thinking about uh, eating the cake and having it at the same time. And we economists don't believe it's feasible. Excellent. Well, you guys may be getting a call then from the UK Trade Department <laughs> or the UK Department here shortly. So Jonathan, our Brexit dilemma, where are we on it? What are your, what are your takeaways? I think it's been a really uh, interesting discussion. I think, you know, I agree. There's no doubt the big loser in the wrong sort of Brexit or in any sort of Brexit <laughs> is undoubtedly the United Kingdom. I think it is complex for EBRD countries of operations because undoubtedly the disruption will cause them issues. We've heard from entrepreneurs. We often hear from government ministers worried about all the implications of that. There is a potential clearly for some EBRD countries of operations to pick up some inward investment. Some will undoubtedly move uh, to manufacturing bases in some EBRD countries of operations because they do have a skill set which is in demand. They do have experience, for example, on Slovakia as we've talked about, you know, in the motor industry, certainly has a lot of expertise. So you can see there's some, some upside in some sectors of the economy. But overall, um, this is an ill wind that blows nobody any good. I think that, that, that will be my feeling at the end of all this. Absolutely. I mean, I'm generally a pretty positive person. Overly optimistic, <laughs> annoyingly optimistic. I'm a grumpy old guy, so I'm not <laughs> But, 
you know, I don't really know how to feel about this. I don't really feel super optimistic about it. I mean, it's very clear that there are going to be widespread impl implications on the supply chains throughout our countries of operation. Um, and it's going to have effects on more than just a few sectors, uh, possibly dramatic effects. So I don't really know how to feel. I'm going to stock up on toilet paper, maybe some French wine, <laughs> um, and huddle down and, and watch the entertainment that is the uh, House of Commons. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Kerry. Thanks to all our guests for a great discussion. Uh, thank you for the audience as well. It was great to, to have you here, this live audience. Uh, you can listen to Pocket Dilemmas, of course, our podcast, which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes. We uh, love that. Email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Uh, and we'd love it if you follow us on Twitter at EBRD is our handle. But from everybody here, thank you very much indeed. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions, and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time. <laughs>